what I ran on was on principles, my principles, which were to be a fair, you know, a strong voice for the res my constituents and city council, represent them uh, in spite of the pushback I might get. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, we sit down with an outgoing Pittsfield City Councilor who's stepping down after a chaotic term on the Western Massachusetts body. With just months remaining in his debut two-year term, Pittsfield, Massachusetts City Councilor Charles Cronick told WAMC last month he won't seek re-election. From almost the start of his tenure, Cronick's bombastic approach has provoked controversy both among the 11-member city council and in the greater community. His use of charter objections, outspoken opposition to the administration of Mayor Linda Tyre, and staunch conservatism on social and financial issues have made him a divisive figure in Berkshire County's largest municipality. From long-winded monologues defending his behavior to pitched arguments with fellow councillors, Cronick's brief time as an elected official in Pittsfield has been memorable. He sat down with WAMC Berkshire Bureau Chief Josh Landis. What I ran on was on principles, my principles, which were to be a fair, you know, a strong voice for the res my constituents and city council, represent them uh, in spite of the pushback I might get, or just be as honest as I can and do the very best I can to help people with their problems, with the city, with their neighbors, with their streets, whatever it is as that they need to get done. And what I accomplished, I was very proud of what I accomplished. I didn't know how I was going to do what I was going to do, <laughs> to be quite honest. I never held a public office before. But I, I heard a very, I, I toured the neighborhoods with people. They invited me to come to their house, walk the streets, Lincoln Avenue, Lincoln Street rather, in the other areas in Morningside and other areas throughout my ward, showed me the things that they want to see done, get done. And I still, I, it took me about a year to get some things fixed, such as just small things that it sounds like to many people, like getting a, oh, a road that was draining water into their basements for 20 years and no one was able, no one, no one touched it. They talked about it, and prior counselors talked about it, asked, but nothing got done. I really pushed, and I got these, and I got those issues uh, addressed head-on by the Department of Public Works. I uh, worked very hard with when the COVID vaccine mandate was passed, was being pressed by the BHS. I heard about it from a person who worked in a restaurant. She was also a might have been a nurse. Maybe she worked as a technician in the hospital. She was very upset. I heard the problem, and I contacted all the city councilors in, our, in all the state representatives, from North Adams all the way to uh, Trisha Bouvier, and I asked them what, we can be do, what can be done, and we had arranged for many meetings to be in potential meetings. Eventually, that resolved itself. But I, you know what? I remembered what happened in North Adams when the hospital closed down suddenly. And I saw a large, was witnessing, I thought, a large outflow of work labor from, the, from BHS. And I did not want to see that happen in Pittsfield. Those are some smaller scale sort of specific things you worked on. It seemed like on, a, on broader issues, you struggled to build consensus on the council and, and often sort of found yourself at odds with other members of the council. Do you have any regrets about how you chose to pursue some of those larger 
goals or broader topics about the city over the course of your tenure? I have very few regrets. I, if I have any regrets, it's not building consensus, but I don't think there was any consensus really to be built. I feel that um, when you see bodies of counselors working together as a group in a consensus fashion, you're not necessarily witnessing alongside that uh, really good representation of the city's needs. What you're seeing are the divvying up of interests sometimes. And, and, the, and that can lead to a separate type of stagnation. So I don't see the goal. I, don't, I never really understood except consensus as a uh, objective in government. Now, there are bodies of thought that want that. And I know uh, Society of Friends, Quakers, they are driven by consensus. They insist upon it. And, if you, and, what, and what that leads to, however, is that if you do not go with the flow, with the flow of the consensus, then you remain silent, which is the, uh, which is the method. That's not the method I would, I would, I would take. Um, I felt that I did indeed, I, I, on a surface, it looked very contentious. I think it looked very um, unproductive, maybe. I do believe, however, that I give an example, however, as to how one is a, un, is, represents a unique voice on a body of 11. And my feeling is that if 11 voices speak differently and do not see eye to eye, if they work together to and come to an agreement, they will get more things right than wrong. So what frustrated me as a counselor is that I felt that there was often a very strong pre, uh, predetermined consensus that stirred, uh, steered all the business of city council to a very predictable outcome. I was not able to change that, and I would not be able to change it. And, then, and, that, is one, and that is really the primary reason why I'm, I'm passing the torch, because I feel that new voices are needed, and it has to be a continuous process of bringing new voices into city council. So with that in mind, with the two people running to succeed you in the Ward 2 seat, are you endorsing either candidate in the race? No, I am endorsing Al Blumen. I have known him for quite a while. He's been a very a frequent uh, guest of the city council, addressing concerns. He's done good things for his neighborhood. He's uh, brought uh, services to the uh, library. He's been a very positive voice, and generally speaking, a very well-spoken man, and I wish him the very best. We're also speaking during a mayoral race of the people running for office. It seems like you've had more overlap ideologically with Karen Kalinowski or Craig Gaetani of the slate of folks who have drawn papers so far. Of course, the other two would be Peter Marchetti, the council president, and John Kroll, the former city councilor. At this time, are you endorsing in the mayoral race? I would definitely endorse Karen Kalinowski, and she and I do share a very strong uh, crossover in, in our in who, for whom we stand. We are both very concerned about the demographics of our city. Uh, we have 20%, over 65, a lot of fixed-income people, our median income is relatively low for the state, like $59,000, dollars And we really want to see relief, tax relief and affordability issues addressed stronger. And she's a, and I give her a hats off to her. She really tries to peel back the layers of, what, of what's going on in City Hall, you know, in, the, in the DPW de- departments and other departments and spending and how money is being spent. I think she'll be a very good steward for the city.
I wanted to turn to the DEI office for a minute. It's something that from your very the very beginning of your tenure, it's something that you were very vocally opposed to the city funding. You know, looking at this most recent budget, the total amount of funding going to that office was, I believe, 0.09% of the total package. When you're talking about fiscal responsibility, do you feel like that that example is the best example of you saying this is about fiscal responsibility and not about broader opposition to the concepts of DEI? I'll tell you what, fiscal responsibility, you have you cannot look at as it's not a straight shot. And you can't sort of like cut your way out into fiscal responsibility by cutting out one department or that department, nor can you get to fiscal responsibility by strictly addressing pay compensations, nor can you get to fiscal responsibility by simply choosing which projects to fund and which projects not to fund. You have to do all of them. And so when I address this budget, I actually, only at the very end did I take up DEI because it was a department that started at $45,000 in year one, is in over three years has grown to over two hundred, almost two hundred thousand dollars, and it will continue to grow. And that, to me, is an example of what happens when a city government adopts a uh, a project and then allows it to just grow out of control. And it does not provide equitable services for the people of Pittsfield. It doesn't. People in Pittsfield walking down the street don't meet, see anything that actually is done in that office. It, strictly speaking, it's internal. It only into the internal workforce. And at that, it's costly. And so I had a problem. That's, so my problem with the DEI office as itself is that it doesn't address the fact that if you're, say, African-American and you are having a problem with the mayor and she kicks you off her the building and that makes you get a, restraint, a police escort to go in there to pay your parking bills, that's not fair, you know, and that's not right. And that office doesn't address those people. And there's a lot of stories like that circling in town. So, again, it's not about the objectives. It's about the structure it presents to the city. And they're not the only office. You know, there are business managers I think we, we need to talk to about. Do we need all these business managers? Do we need as many administrators in the, in the public schools? It's an example. And throughout the budget hearings, I talked about these different offices that need to be cut. And my biggest concern was a $20,000 raises to public school administrators who are getting on top of that additional raises in their salary for the COLAs. And it's very hard, and people and that comes out directly out of the pockets of the people who really are una- most unable to afford that. So you're, you're taking money from people who are not affluent in order to give raises to people who are quite affluent. And that, to me, is a problem. But the other, And then there's the third thing is, where do we want to spend our money? You know, are we putting it into roads? Are we putting it into vehicles that we probably don't need? Well, so, I, I just, take, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Josh. I don't mean to interrupt. <laughs> I'm on a roll here. But the thing is that when you say I focus on DEI, I think that that is a, for a lot of people are afraid to talk about these. that office. It's a very political office. But the point is that I see, I look at the whole picture and I, and I look and I want to say we need to set the priorities here and in this in the in the compensations and in the spending. You're listening to WAMC's extended interview with Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Ward 2 City Councilor Charles Cronick, who told WAMC in June that he would not seek a second two-year term this year. 
Well, I, I wanted to draw on a comment from your colleague, Kevin Sherman, who during this conversation at DEI pointed out that, you know, there are other offices of our government in Pittsfield that, that do work that, to paraphrase Mr. Sherman, he talked about how he doesn't fly an airplane and yet he helps fund the municipal airport, for example, or he doesn't have a boat, but he helps to pay for boat launches on Anoda Lake through his tax dollars. What do you say to that concept, that there are just sort of invariably there are things that we contribute to that don't directly influence us, but do influence the broader community? Well, now we're getting into difficult territory, right? Because you're right. We don't, uh, if everybody says, I don't want my taxes to go into the Nota Lake, I don't use a boat. I don't want my taxes to go into um, work on downtown. I, I live on the outskirts. I never go downtown. I mean, the, the, those are not uh, valid arguments, of course, because... You know, we share a the the uh, the value of our city is based upon the, the sum of all those things, and we we you know that leads to a very you can't you know it leads to a unholistic approach to the governance. However, here's where it, we get into the question of what is a controlled delusion. A controlled delusion is when a group of people get together, they agree upon a problem that exists. Like there is a problem, for example, with uh, racism, prejudice, bias, uh, or just just a not a in, in a uh, a structural problem that is leading to a very bad outcome. You know, maybe not deliberate in those regards. There's the problem. That's the controlled delusion is that you create an office to deal with it, which you know won't work and does not actually produce results, but you agree to fund it and pursue it because by doing so, you project the image that you are actually addressing the problem. Well, I, I, I want to just, uh, no, just, just, no, Charles, I just want to quickly, I want to quickly push back here. The supposition at the core of that argument is that this is something that's not working and not doing a thing right now. But I, th I suppose others, others would say this is a nascent office that's newly staffed, newly created, doing work that people in the community have come forward to vocalize to the council and to the city, and that perhaps saying that it hasn't produced X or Y within a year of its existence. Does that seem like a good faith argument that it's not going to at some point do that work? or? You know, are there statements that, that you can point to from folks who have called for this kind of work to be done, who are saying that it's not working for them? I, I'm not really sure what the basis of that is, because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of actual information about the office's work to really make a statement that's sweeping about at this point. Well, the general fact is that, in general, people, I think uh, cities and institutions and businesses are, are understanding that these are not really uh, functioning uh, departments. I do believe, however, I, I, I present my, I simply present my argument, my perception, my, my viewpoint, and I do, and I do so very uh, forthrightly and honestly. And I feel like that's where I would like to leave it. It's not that I, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change your minds about it, and I don't need to. The office remains untouched, and it will go forth that way, and that's, that's how it works. And I'm not, and I'm not unhappy. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. But when I go to see, we were talking in context of the uh, of the budgeting, my view is that it should be it should not say it should have been cut from the budget because the budget is huge, and so I get it. It's only one percent, and I and I went and I, and I put about one percent of my effort into it, <laughs> to be honest with you. 
I put a lot more effort into uh, my biggest effort was really on the water and sewer rates, which is a huge cut hit on people and the a million dollars off the health insurance in order to steer the city into a better negotiation uh, position. DEI was a very brief, you know, sort of like footnote in my budget hearing, only because it was there. And what I feel is that really it comes down to 11 voices, 11 perspectives, and mine was, and I, in being honest, this is what I stand for. From your perspective, whoever your eventual successor is, what's your advice to them on how to best represent the, the collective voice of Ward 2? If you sort of learned something from this experience you'd want to pass forward, you know, what, what would that be? Well, first of all, it is a life-changing act to serve, uh, go into city council, if, you have a, if you're not a councilor already. It will absolutely change you. If it doesn't change you, you're not looking in the right place. Uh, you need to talk to people. You need to walk and hear what they have to say. Discover who lives in your ward. Every neighborhood has a treasure in it that you just don't believe. Like I went down on Winter Street, and there was a guy who had this very modest home. He go in the back, and he created a landscape back there, you know, out of his own artistry. And you need to know about these people and that that's there. And you need to look into yourself and wonder, who are you going to be? each time you go into city council because, you know, you're going to be swayed and pulled and tugged at, and you have to be independent, and you have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to speak on behalf of my ward, I'm going to speak on behalf of my principles. And sometimes you and your ward are not going to be on the same page. You're not really a place where your voice comes out of. Your, your voice is your own voice, and you need to be absolutely honest with, your, with what you stand for so people know that and you need to be independent, and you need to be absolutely open to everybody who's out in your ward. I wanted to ask you specifically about a, a recent effort you made in the council. You've talked a lot about how you wanted this to be a principles-driven activity that, that brought you to be on the council. It, it seemed like the petition to prevent folks under the age of 30 from running for school committee was antithetical to some of the values that you have expressed about how much you value democracy and how much you value you know, individual freedom and allowing folks, as, as you say, to not be part of a pack or part of a herd. In this petition that was citing like apocryphal stories from the 18th century in an effort, well, by definition, I believe that what was cited in the petition was not was apocryphal. It was like un, unverified sources and anonymous conversation. And But regardless, can you square that principles-driven mission with this unsuccessful effort to, to ban folks under the age of 30 for running for school committee? Because I think that is where, as, a, as an observer, it's unclear to me if that was a position that you felt reflected your principles or if it was a stunt to sort of create conversation, because it ended up taking up multiple city council meetings and generating you know, some pushback from both your fellow councilors and the community. So I, I wanted to put it to you if you could try to articulate that to me. Well, certainly. First of all, I, Josh, I had to say, it's not apocryphal. That conversation did take place. It's a well-documented one. But Besides which, uh, back to your actual question, was it a stunt? Absolutely not. That petition was really not intended to be debated at the city council. It was, it was intent, my, my position, to, my, that petition, <laughs> I'm stumbling, was supposed to be submitted to the Charter Review Committee for them to debate, to dissect, to say, and, you know, in, in their, totally in their hands. They say this is uh, undoable, impossible, not not legal, whatever they would come up with, 
totally their discretion, and I had and I had no intention of uh, battering them to adopt. But I did feel that we have a charter review coming up in a year, and I looked and being having uh, witnessed what I see as flaws, for example, in our current uh, governance. So I say it's time for me to put forth what I think should change in our charter so as to make the next 10 years a better 10 years than the last 10 years. So those were the purposes of my petitions. Now, as for 30 years old, I actually said in that meeting the first time that I didn't necessarily agree that, uh, say, believe that 30 is the proper age. I mean, if you want to pull an age out of, out of the air, you know, they all kind of sound arbitrary in some fashion. And I sort of quipped that maybe we should be 80, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, you know, people really got upset by that. And I, I understand. It is a, if you never think about it, if you haven't sort of, if it comes to you sort of fresh, you might, you would say, well, well that's a shocker, 30. But it's actually not that, I chose the age 30, because I looked at the Constitution. There were age limits, and it's in, and I'd realized it discovered naturally. I already knew, of course, but the age, minimum ages are enshrined in our Constitution. And 30, I think, is for Senate. So I figure a school committee is my principle. I looked at that only because I put that, that I was been sitting on this issue for a while. There is a bill, I think, in Boston. They want to allow the uh, student representative on the school committee to have an actual vote on the school committee. Now, I was going to address that in some fashion, and I figured I'd just address it right here. The point is, when you go from high school and go directly into the school committee, you bring with you your experience as a high school student. Now, that's kind of like if you are working at, in City Hall as a um, finance director, and then next year you run for city council, become the city councilor. You're not allowed to do that in Massachusetts. You, you need a, they have what's known as a cooling off period where you have to be a year or two off before you can go, go from an employed position to an elected position. It seems like a false equivalency to say that someone who's mandatorily attending a public school is equivalent to being a municipal employee. I think that I'm not right. sure. If it's not a, it is not a legal equivalent. However, there is a fact that your mind is there as a member of that school and you're sort of going directly in. I think emotionally, I would like to think that there is a time where you need to get out and see what's going on in the world, get a perspective of what an education really is all about, because you can't see it when you're in the forest. You can't, see, you can't see the forest. You're just surrounded by the trees. So I feel like a school committee person is someone who should have some sort of perspective on the whole, on a little bit on, on life outside the school. That's a personal opinion. I understand that. And I... Uh, presented it for this charter review to debate it, if they care to debate it. And I didn't think, and I didn't really see it as a debate that had a place really in the city council, only because we don't decide what's going to go into the charter. So that's my two cents on the matter. I mean, I've, it's just something I believed in and I thought, and I still do. And is it anti-democratic? Not really, because it doesn't really, democracy is a very, very, very broad range of ideas. And we don't adopt most concepts of democracy, and we don't really want to. You know, we don't want necessarily to have uh, roving mobs of people sort of running our, our lives, right? We want, you know, the city council is itself 
if you talk to Councillor Persip, for example, he was against the ballot initiative and he's, uh, for the bike lanes. He said that we are not a town where the people show up to a town, a town meeting and take a vote right then and there. They leave it up to their councillors to make up their, to determine the policy. That, in many, a lot of people saw that as being anti-democratic. But he's right. I mean, we don't have town meetings. We have a city council that votes, yes, we want bike lanes, no, we don't. And we're not, we're not gonna put it, we don't think we should put it on the ballot for the mass of people to show up and vote on it. So we, I'm saying that this is an argument you can look at it, you can apply it to a lot of different areas. For some reason, this one took the, I think that this was really the lesser of the arguments in terms of say bike lanes, because a bike lanes would have put something on the ballot and city council chose not to do that. Whereas my petition was a hypothetical idea that would have been presented to a, a, a charter commission that would have had full solitary discretion to even, to, even uh, to discuss it. Okay, that does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks to our Josh Landis for that interview, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.